Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it is stuck. Talking about special side tracks for wheelmen. It really seems a pity that no attempt has been made to get the Melbourne City Council to lay down asphalt strips, say, two feet wide, on each side of St Kilda Road, alongside the gutter cobblestones. The way wheelmen and wheelwomen now have to mix in with the general vehicle traffic is certainly conductive to accidents. To suggest... The suggested cycle strips on either side of the road would confine the cycle traffic to two narrow streams, one coming to and the other going away from the city. The cost would be trivial and the benefits derivable widespread. That comes from the 19th of November, 1897. We're here at Yarrabuck Radio Show, 3CR. Many thanks to Naomi Goodman and Democracy Now. You're listening to 3CR, either on the tranny in the kitchen, streaming or podcasting. And it is a spanky, northerly, blusty, <laughs> sort of negatively charged irons streaming down from the north here in Melbourne and who had a tailwind on the way here. Good morning, Faith. Good morning, Val. And our special visitors from, I'm going to say Canada, but I'm not going to say nonsense. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard it before. Uh, Chris and Melissa, good morning. Good morning. Hello. And we're going to talk, we're going to talk bikes, of course. And we're going to talk bikes from all over the world and what can we find in all those other different places. We've had a lot of trouble with St Kilda Road. 1897 was just the beginning of it. We're still having an argument about bicycle lanes St Kilda Road. Still the highest accident rate for bicycles in Melbourne is St Kilda Road. 120 years. 121 years. You know what else hasn't changed since 1897? Cyclists riding up Sydney Road in 1897 were complaining about the hot northerly wind. 
There we go. <laughs> Bringing the dust from, from further They might have had a few more trees and that holding the dust down, but yeah, the, no, the wind was certainly there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, faith. Bike moments abound. Oh, my bike moment this morning, it's, it's, it's a repeat, but it, the thing is it never gets old, this one. Um, yep. Anyone who travels on the uh, sort of Napier Street route into Fitzroy will know the Alexandra Parade crossing and the two sets of extremely long lights you have to get over uh, where the <clears throat> car traffic gets priority. And it was just one of those mornings where as I got to the first set, they turned green and I did have to wait for the second set, but it was only like a minute. It, it happens once a year, so I'm going to mention it every time. Time it happens. <laughs> you can sit there and you sit there and you sit there. Um, Melissa? Oh, the bike moment. Um, <laughs> I didn't put you on the spot. Yes. Well, we've, I mean, we've been cycling with our kids forever, but I think... Um, the most, it's the most random moments, but it's usually when we're just cycling along on our way to a beach or something in Vancouver where we live and having the most random stories with our kids, um, specifically with our daughters. Uh, with her and I, we tend to ride ahead of uh, Chris and our son Etienne, and we'll have these stories about how life is changing or she'll talk to me about what's happening at school or social things, and, and it's funny, but we don't have those moments when we're just sitting on the couch together, when we're on a bike riding along the water. Um, it's pretty special, so I'll, those are my bike moments, I think. <laughs> Chris. Yeah, and I'll share the uh, moment that's freshest in my mind. We just came from Canberra, and we're lucky enough to ride some of the off-street cycle paths there. And uh, we were on a tour with uh, somebody from the ACT government uh, around 8.30 in the morning. So it was kind of the morning rush hour. And as we were pulling up to an intersection, this nine-year-old, must have been eight or nine-year-old girl, pulls in in front of me all by herself. She's riding all by herself. And I just did a double take and I absolutely just lit up and uh, to see a moment like that uh, here in Australia where we've heard, uh, you know, so many negative things about the cycling infrastructure and about the uh, parental culture to see uh, that instant really uh, made this trip uh, worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, How special actually after. Yeah, uh, I um, as a lot of the uh, as the two listeners would know, I do <laughs> one day a week rebirthing bikes, and actually then a big local community. So if people have what they call a healthcare card, I'll give them we give them bikes. But of course, around that are a lot of young children as well. And over a period of time, I'm watching kids that started off with trainer wheels, and the latest episode was last Friday where. Now we've gone through a change of three new bikes in the last six months or something, and everyone getting a little bit better. It's really quite wonderful to watch, and the younger brother then taking the other mm-hmm. one and tagging along. It's got uh, as a ride away with dad. It's it's and it's a parental thing. Is he's bringing them down there all to get a bike? It is quite good. And that's at second chance cycles. That's at second yeah. chance, yeah. which I'm sure they'll end up in a skate bowl somewhere, but in, enjoy <laughs> it as well. Yeah. <laughs> you can always corrupt the young, I've found. A lot easier <laughs> than trying to get middle-aged people to ride a bike. <laughs> we got a little bit of news. A little bit a of little news? A couple of things just to mention quickly. Um There's going to be a new cycling and pedestrian boulevard from the Shrine to the Sea and Parks Victoria managing this project. They want feedback from people who will use it on what they would like to see along that boulevard and the nature it should take. Um, 
To make it unique, celebrating the identity, life and culture of Melbourne and also something that pedestrians and cyclists can safely use to get straight down from the shrine to the sea. So that survey closes today, so I'll put the post up with the podcast. But if you want to do it now, then just Google Shrine to the Sea Parks Victoria and it'll be the first thing that pops up. And Portville Council, I presume, are involved in it in some part, you would think. It's it's an interesting project in that it's been sort of it's been given to Parks Victoria to manage, so yeah. it circumvents a lot of those. Those things. Yeah. Uh, when we were we were talking before in the green room, um, <laughs> it's interesting. Port Phillip Council are now picking up the idea of people like Darabin and Yarra. I mean, Yarra and Moreland, and actually this whole thing's shifting south now, which is um, and it for good reason. It needs a fair bit of infrastructure, but it is a couple of Melbourne special rides yeah. down there. Yeah. Uh, and the other news, this time up in the north, is that it's been announced that the Upfield Line will be getting Skyrail as part of the Level Crossing Removal Project, which is a great opportunity to um, do something about the Upfield Shared Path, which is one of Melbourne's very heavily used bicycle commuter routes and is already in peak hour, well over capacity. And it's at the moment constrained by the fact that you have a railway line and warehouses on the other side so moving the railway line into the air means you can build really good quality pedestrian and uh, bike paths as long as a lot of other community space um so we'll put some links up in the podcast to um some facebook groups and that where you can put up ideas for what you'd like to see under SkyRail and how the shape you'd like to see that take and that's it for the news. Now we're going to delve into a really serious problem. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, what did Vancouver, one thing Vancouver did right to turn itself into a cycling city? Uh, well, I think the, the most critical move was uh, we elected a bike-friendly mayor in 2008. Um, he was already part of the local advocacy community, had participated in critical mass, and um, ran on a platform of building bike lanes in Vancouver and, and making the streets safer. And uh, 10 years later, our city looks starkly different than it did prior to his election. And he's still in um, the mayor? Well, he was elected twice, re- or re-elected twice. So he ran three terms. Um, he just actually stepped down. So we have a new mayor now. Um, but the council itself, the makeup, um, we, our election happened just before we arrived in Australia in late October, is largely made up of people that are at least um, bike bike friendly. I wouldn't say bike advocate for all of them, (laughs) (laughs) but none of them ran on a a platform of taking away the infrastructure that they put in. It's all a matter of either keeping what is there or building upon that, depending on which side of the the scale they they sit. (laughs) And so how did this influence you guys personally? Because that timing seems significant. Yeah, and we always refer to ourselves as uh, the recipients of some really fortunate timing because we moved to Vancouver in 2007. And so um, we saw that investment in fully protected bike lanes that was happening. We also happened to move in a very walkable, uh, transit-rich community. Car sharing was just getting off the ground in Vancouver. So it was within 12 months we found our car was collecting dust and in the parking garage and decided to sell the car 
um, which would give us, you know, uh, five, six hundred dollars a month extra in our pockets um, to start living life, to put into experiences, into travel and reinvest into our children um, rather than in this depreciating asset that was that was sitting in our in our parking space. So we were certainly the benefactors of uh, the bike is one way we get around, not the only way we get around, but it certainly helped to make uh, for us to make that decision. Is Vancouver a walkable city? I would say for the most part, yeah. Um, I think there are places, though, in Australia, Australia where we've enjoyed some very wide footpaths, um, where I think we would beg for those in some of our neighborhoods. But for the most part, we, much like Melbourne, we have uh, neighborhoods. Um, they're not their own councils like they are here, but we've got East Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, Strathcona, the West Side, and all of those communities uh, get out and walk to their local markets. For the most part, uh, you know, the shop. There's a big emphasis on shopping local, yeah. and so I think you know we've really enjoyed uh, living in a city where walking is facilitated quite easily. We also have a very mild climate, so never usually goes above thirty or below five, <laughs> <laughs> which makes that even easier. Although you know, just bundle up with a coat or yeah. wear wear your loose clothing on a hot day, and you'll be just fine. <laughs> and and how that decision to start using more active modes of transport and and mixing modes you do all that as a family together so how how does that work like what are the the or are there unexpected uh offshoots from that for you or benefits um yeah well certainly um since so we sold the when we sold the car the children were one and three respectively and so I was at the time working predominantly from home and would get them to and from preschool and what have you probably on foot more often than not mm-hmm. or once in a while in a bike trailer um, but as we've grown up the kids have gotten to know their neighborhood on foot our daughter who's now twelve will start has started using public transportation to get around on her own um and i but you know aside from just how we navigate the city more actively i think it's provided more opportunities to um have those moments like like my bike moment where we have these conversations with our kids that we wouldn't have if we were all that we don't have when we're all sat in a car we're focused on driving and they're in the back and need to be quiet so we can stay focused so i think more of those personal moments well, and then there's the, you know, the, the roller coaster ride that we're on right now, which is, uh, we never could have anticipated, you know, uh, Melissa was working in the fashion industry, I was working in architecture, bicycle advocacy, and the idea of lobbying for better cities never really occurred to us. And still, we started cycling, experiencing our streets, seeing the challenges, seeing the successes, starting to communicate that on social media and uh, starting blog blogs and and which snowballed to you know making producing films to writing a book to bring us here to australia i mean if you just sat down with chris and melissa 10 years ago and told them what this this journey this decision would have led us i think we would have laughed at yeah. you because we never could have could have anticipated that it had all these knock-on effects that are pretty pretty wild and part for you part of the journey you mentioned was um the the dutch experience Maybe tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so we, you know, after lobbying for regular everyday cycling for so many years, we ultimately decided it was time to go and experience what we knew to be the best uh, cycling nation in the world in the Netherlands. And so we were writing for a website at the time and pitched them this idea on doing uh, a five-week visit, hitting up five Dutch cities and writing uh, five articles for the website. And, uh, you know, we went through that exercise. Needless to say, it was we were absolutely head over heels in love. But there was so much story there, so much um, 
history, so much culture, so much, uh, so many lessons for North American cities that we never really felt we communicated the full um, weight of the narrative. And, and so it was after we wrote those five articles that we started putting it together in a book pitch and uh, had introduced to Island Press and they helped us work through that book pitch uh, to, you know, what became Building the Cycling City. The, um, sorry, I'm all, um, what I was going to say was there seems to be, I can see it here in some places in Melbourne when we talk about, and when you talk about the districts, and when I'm asking you about walking, when you actually then take small neighbourhoods not and don't see things as a city-wide. We're a bit obsessed here with joining up all the cycling links that go from the north to the south, whereas sometimes the more important ones is the kilometre and a half that kids ride to school, that local walking, that mm-hmm. local parks or that local safety or a little bit more protection. We all seem to jump in the cities and see it as a big thing instead of just the neighbourhood we live in. Yeah, well, I think, and that's one of the things that Chris and I have really, um, I think you're right, and, and what we've, what we've sort of started to push towards now is that idea of linking up those those one or two kilometre trips or even five kilometre trips. Um, we're so, in North America as well, we're so focused on that idea of the commute to work. How does one get from home mm-hmm. to where they, yeah. they go to work every day? And, you know, really that's the longest trip you're ever going to take in a day. And far more often you're taking that quick jaunt to get the kids to school or go to pick up a jug of milk or, you know, all those little little trips that we often take for granted. And they're, you know, they're really important. And I think... Um, for cities, you know, in the Netherlands, they've done that really, really well in creating traffic calm streets or creating infrastructure on busier streets where they need to be. Yeah. And we can take a lesson from that in terms of, you know, making it so we don't have to shuttle our kids to school every day because it's completely safe for them to make that journey on their own or to the community center. Or even, you know, we t- if we are thinking about our aging population and making it so they can mo- maintain their own mobility well into their twilight years as opposed to have to rely on public transportation or taxis and things like that. I think that's the major paradigm shift that we need to, uh, and what we really took from the Dutch is cycling has much more to do with walking there. It's just a slightly faster, slightly more efficient way of walking around your neighborhood Mm. um, than it does with driving. And I think um, if we see um, cycling as an extension of walking and that it may actually cannibalize walking trips that's okay you know it's um but it will open up people's neighborhoods and allow them to travel more frequently and further distances uh around their their community rather than um having to jump in a car every time they need to get a jug of milk yeah and i think that's one of the big observations i made living in the netherlands like here the emphasis had always been on ride to work and you realize very quickly in the netherlands hardly anyone rides to work they're all riding to the station mm-hmm. you know yeah. no one's riding I mean, I rode there seven kilometres to work and I would always be told, you know, hail sportif because, you know, that was a really uh, athletic commute for them, whereas yeah. here it would be considered a very short one. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, my commute to... So aside from um, being co-founder of Medacity and having the work that goes with that, I also work full-time um, in the city centre in, in Vancouver and my commute is seven kilometers and to me it's like oh i'm not really biking enough no. because everyone i know is biking <laughs> 10 kilometers to work yeah um but yeah the and, and that's another thing that we we really try to harp on and we've mentioned it a few um visits a few cities we visited this time around is that 
um, opportunity in Australia to combine bikes with transit for those working trips because I think there are a lot of people who are never going to capture to do those no. like 10 yeah. to 20 kilometer trips to That's work. That's not where the big numbers are. No. Like, and that, again, you can just look at the Dutch or Copenhagen and see that thing. And we have things now where, you know, people are promising enormous amounts of money to build more car parks at railway stations in outer suburbs. You know, and I think it works out to be 37000 per car park, whereas you could just put in a separated bike path from the local housing development to that railway station because mm-hmm. everyone's just driving five kilometres or less. It's, yeah. You know, well, and that one parking space could hold, what, like 10 to 15 bikes? Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. <laughs> Chrissy, um, I'm not sure how it happens in Vancouver, or but we get a drop-off in children riding bikes once they leave primary school and go to high school. It's starting to come back in a lot of places now. It, 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 there's some really there's yeah, hot yeah. spots where it's completely different. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that tells you. And they're not always where you expect. I think that's what's interesting. Like you think, oh, yeah, Yarra and Moreland, of course. You've got infrastructure. Yeah. You've got parents who are into it, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, there are schools in the outer suburbs who have done really good work. But, yeah, they are hot yeah. spots. It's not consistent. Yeah, and I think that's uh, it's an issue that hits quite home, uh, close to home for us. We have a 12-year-old daughter, and we've watched as her a lot of her friends have st- stopped writing. Yeah. Um, and it's I think it's a variety of things. It's a lack of infrastructure. I think it's uh, a certain concern about their personal appearance, uh, maybe the cultural baggage that, that uh, bicycling brings. Um, but uh, And the, the mandatory helmet law obviously doesn't help things. But um, I think one thing we, we took from our time in the Netherlands is it's possible to uh, if we make cycling desirable for teenagers, they will keep keep cycling through those years. Um, and but you've got to remove that stigma, and you've got to um, kind of just make it the the easiest way to get around for for teenagers without having mom or dad shuttle them around in the in the family taxi. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure Chris can remember the number, but in terms of the actual stat, but. Um, per capita, teenagers make up the largest number of people that ride bikes to and mm. from to and from their home to wherever they're going yeah. in the Netherlands, where we don't have that here. Yeah, it's it's about two thousand kilometers for every teenager they ride on average per year in the Netherlands. So they're covering a significant amount of distance, and I think it, to them, it's it's in part it's freedom to go uh, move around their city. Freedom from their parents is almost a rite of passage that perhaps getting your driver's licenses uh, in other countries. But uh, we've got, I think, a lot of work to do in multiple fronts, not just building the infrastructure, but also um, making cycling a normal part of people's everyday lives if we want to see that change. Uh, it's interesting. I used to ask guests their first cycling experience or their first ride. And four out of five would be this sense of independence that I had that I could leave the home, I could travel five or six kilometres and meet friends and stuff like that. You hear it in a lot of people that was that first idea of, you know, having my own mobility and Mm. get around. Mm. Can we go back to the Dutch quickly? Sure. Is it still improving? Oh, constantly. Um, So depending on what city, some cities are further ahead than others, and so they're they're constantly striving to make streets safer, to make cycling uh, easier for people. Um, and then you've got places like Amsterdam where they've been enjoying incredible cycling numbers for decades now and are now basically throwing out the manual and finding new ways to deal yeah. with the immense number of people yeah. on bikes. So <laughs> it used to be a bike lane. Now they're looking at creating complete bike streets and removing cars from the equation altogether. Um, they've even, in some 
instances taken the traffic lights out and returned well, to an yes, idea of ambiguity because <laughs> when you have to think a little bit more you, you stop exactly. <laughs> um so it's really interesting and and you know we talked so much about these short trips and that's really i mean where we I think we need to focus outside of the netherlands in terms of trips but they're now looking at they how do we connect problem yeah. yeah how do we connect city to city and, and give people options for those longer commutes especially as I think it's one in three bikes that are purchased in the Netherlands now are an e-bike. So yeah. they're the biggest bike e-bike market yeah. in the world, and these are helping to facilitate that, which is great. Yeah. Oh. I'm not going to make my comment about all the Dutchmen riding electric bikes. <laughs> no, no. You know that it's the first time ever that bike deaths ahead of car deaths in the Netherlands last year. Hmm. And the yeah. biggest jump was elderly people getting on electric bikes. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I think we we've seen that stat and it's a little bit misleading because they yep. they cycle so many kilometers yes. versus any other country in the world. Um and then also what we've heard is uh um there's a lot of problem with mounting and dismounting these bikes yes. or yeah. or hitting the throttle accidentally yes. and that's also considered a traffic death or, yep. or or injury even if it's just mounting the bicycle. So I think we need to be careful in uh, yeah. in in talking about that because per capita I mean they have the safest yep. safest streets in the world and uh um, I, I think certain people are pushing the alarm button on e-bikes, and and we simply see them as a a way to get more people on bikes, yep. to encourage more people to take uh, longer trips, ride more frequently, uh, not worry about sweat or hills or um, any of these other kind of deterrents to to getting on a bicycle. And, and the, oh, sorry. No, no. Um, so, and one I think one really interesting aspect of all this is. Um, and you, you sort of alluded it to when you were talking about your daughter and um, how do we break down that thing in North America and here in Australia where to choose to ride a bike is to choose to belong to a certain demographic and so it, it's not something, because that's the other thing in the Netherlands, it's it's not a mm-hmm. cultural decision, is it? It's, no, it's everyone. Yeah. How do we break that down? Well, I think uh, one of the reasons that Chris and I exist as an organization in terms of Audacity is because we felt that when it comes to cycling marketing, it is very uh, tribalistic. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about cyclists um, and we put a lot of focus on the types of bikes people ride and, oh, it's really, you know, it's cool to do this, but in like a really sort of um, leftist kind of way. We've basically turned bicycles into a political tool. Yeah. And I think what we what we try to do is really take away those, remove those barriers and just show the bicycle as a transportation tool and the person riding it is simply a person on a bike. Um, we tend to show, you know, lots of diversity, lots of age range, um, and really try to make it so that people can see cycling as an as an option for getting around the city and not as a political tool to say, oh, yeah. now I belong to this group and I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm some hipster from the, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. side of the city in our case. So we've got an election coming up and now cyclists are one of those identifiable demographics. They actually, if, yeah. I've seen a couple of things in the paper. If you are this, how will you vote? If you're a cyclist, how you will vote? If you're a public transport user, how you vote? So all of a sudden, that we're just reinforcing it all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, and and they're all appealing to different types of cyclists. You get some parties are offering things for infrastructure for, in the city, and 
um, then another party is offering things that are more about tourism and rail trails and yep. those sorts of opportunities, which you know are probably more palatable. <laughs> I never forget my father promised me a trip to Disneyland, Disneyland when I was five. <laughs> they make a lot of promises. Actually, you want to see the asphalt on the road before <laughs> yeah. you actually do anything. Well, and that's I think just that's what's really important. And I think we spoke to a friend here in Melbourne and said he doesn't care, you know, who who the party is. If they're talking about putting in bike lanes, that's where he will. Yeah, that exactly. will put a support, yeah. yeah. So um, out of all this, you've mentioned a few times your book, Building the Cycling City, the Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality, and you're going to be launching that here in Melbourne? Yeah, we have an event uh, planned tomorrow night. That's Tuesday, November 20th at the Bicycle Network office. Uh, it's 246 Bork Street. The event starts at 6 p.m. and the book will be available there. And also at uh, Tim's Bookshop, uh, we'll be stocking it uh, after the event if you can't make it out that uh, that evening. Okay, and we'll have those details up with the podcast too. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming into the studio today. Thanks for um, having us. Pleasure. <laughs> And uh, (laughs) 3CR relies on volunteers and the support of its listeners to stay on the air. So if you'd like to make a donation or subscribe, you can do that at 3cr.org.au or call in on 94798377. Coming up next is... Jailbreak. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.